You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein. Maintaining a successful and profitable medical practice can be a tall order for anybody, including gastroenterologists. We find ourselves in changing times, changing reimbursement, changing philosophies. We are being called on to be not only experts in gastroenterology, but also business managers. My guest today is medical management expert, Dr. Joel Brill. Dr. Brill is also chair of the AGA Institute's Clinical Practice Management and Economic Committee and chief medical officer of Predictive Health. Joel, before we even get started, I'd like to welcome you and ask you just to tell us a little bit about yourself and why are we talking to you? Well, gosh, Jay, thank you so much for inviting me. And what can I tell you? I trained in gastroenterology in Southern California and practiced out in Southern California for over a decade, had an opportunity to take a bit of a detour for several years' time, and as my colleagues would say, went to the dark side for several years and worked in the insurance industry, and then came back, saw the light, and spent a lot of my time right now, in addition to clinical practice, doing things relating to health policy and looking at the future of gastroenterology new business opportunities within our field and trying to make sure that we can position ourselves for success in the years to come. Well, let's pick up on that word success. Uh, I think it's an important word. I chair our quality improvement committee at the university that I'm at. So I'm going to ask you a very straightforward question. How important is it for GI practices to measure and report on what they do? I think it's a very critical thing. You know that when many of us started practice, medicine was a cottage industry. And you did, you build, you got paid, life was good, no one was looking over your shoulder. But we've entered an era in the past few years' time of transparency in healthcare. And payers, both Medicare as well as private insurers, are starting to ask some pretty tough questions. They're asking the questions not just on their own behalf, but they're asking those questions on behalf of the businesses, large and small, that are using those payers to pay for services. And they want to know what value did they receive? And, you know, did you perform the appropriate service? I mean, just think about it. If you were a patient and the doctor, you know, did an operation on you for, a, oh gosh, let's say a slip disc, and the operation was a success, except he operated on the wrong disc, you wouldn't be too pleased about that. And so people are starting to look pretty intensely at gastroenterology. In comparison to some of our other specialties, gastroenterologists really don't have that much in the way of quality measures over the past few years' time. So it's very important to recognize that our specialty societies have taken a very proactive approach towards helping to develop quality measures, which will be unveiled in the coming months, and that practices should be, if they haven't thought about it already, should be prepared to measure and report on what they do. Well, let's get specific. Depending on your perspective, if you're the physician, the payer, or the patient, your measure of success may vary. To our payers and to our patients, what do you think are the most important measures that they're going to be interested in? I think the 
the most important one is to make sure that we did the right service and we provided the right service to the right patient at the right time. Unfortunately, or fortunately, a lot of what we do nowadays is related to colonoscopy. So people are asking questions such as, if we did the colonoscopy, was the PrEP appropriate? Did we reach the cecum? Did we spend adequate time evaluating the colon, looking for diminutive lesions, flat lesions, things of that nature? And did we bring that patient back at an appropriate interval for that next follow-up or screening examination? That's probably the big thing that payers are going to be focused on in the coming years. From the patient's perspective, the patient wants to make sure that you did the right job. You know, it's not about speed. It's about the quality of the procedure and making sure that you can tell the patient and their family at the end of the procedure that you did the examination and we didn't see anything and you don't have to come back for a period of time. I think that gives a peace of mind to our patients and to, of course, to our referral physicians. Oh, that's kind of interesting. I noticed that you're talking about the positive things of colonoscopy. You didn't mention things like complication rates and stuff and associated factors. What do you think about that as a quality indicator? There have been a number of studies which have looked at complications rates in colonoscopy. And mind you, colonoscopy performed in a number of settings, office, ASC, as well as hospital settings. And actually, for the most part, we do a pretty darn good job. It's a fairly safe procedure. We've evolved in terms of how we monitor patients, how we sedate patients and make sure that we can sedate them in a safe manner and the like. So I think that unless, you know, one of our colleagues has got some technological issues or you've just got some, just truly some bad luck, for the most part, most of us should be doing a pretty good job in avoiding complications. But the big one will be, of course, are we missing precancerous lesions? And I think that there have been some papers many of us are familiar with in the last year to two years' time, which have looked at the importance of taking one's time and carefully examining the colon to make sure that we don't miss lesions, especially precancerous lesions. Well, the technology is probably there. We just need to implement it. Before we go on, if you're just tuning in, you are listening to GI Insights on Reach MDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Jay Goldstein, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Joel Brill regarding business considerations for the GI practice. Well, Dr. Brill, you also mentioned earlier, fleetingly, sedation and anesthesia. That's a major concern right now for colonoscopy and endoscopic procedures. What are the controversies that you see that will impact on the quality of health care? Well, gosh. That's a global if, question, if, isn't it? If you want to look at probably a flashpoint for the coming years, there's no question that sedation is going to be that flashpoint. The practice has changed. I think that many of us trained at a time when we were trained in, in administering moderate sedation, benzodiazepams and opiates. And we received some training during our fellowship and we went out into our practice settings and we got pretty facile at sedating patients. Although many of us can recall that the patients would have some discomfort and so it was not uncommon for us to give patients some additional sedation during the endoscopic procedure. But during this decade, there has been a growth in two trends. One is in the, the growth of having anesthesia professionals, whether it's an anesthesiologist or a CRNA, um, assist in administering what's called as monitored anesthesia care or MAC sedation. And we've also seen a growth of 
both gastroenterologists directed, gastroenterologists administered, and gastroenterologists supervised sedation using propofol-type agents. And those two things are starting to collide because, you know, it was one thing when the use of MAC was about 15 to 20%, and it really wasn't on anybody's radar screen. But now the use of MAC sedation has increased dramatically. In fact, some of our data, which is based on data that has been provided to us by several large national insurance companies, has shown that in some areas of the country, the use of, of MAC for GI procedures has been, as believe it or not, as high as 67% in some of our states. And when it gets to that point, people start sitting up and taking notice. And the reason that they start taking notice, it's not because of our fees. It's because of what the anesthesiologists are charging. Many of our colleagues may not recognize that the average reimbursement that Medicare might pay an anesthesiologist would be about 150 or so dollars. But commercial payers, the average amount of money that an anesthesiologist receives for administering sedation is over $435. And when you start adding those numbers up to the, gosh, 18 million or so endoscopic procedures that are performed in the United States every year, we're talking about a $5 billion a year industry. And that's not chump change if you're a payer. No, it certainly isn't. (laughs) What do you think will actually happen in the future in regards to MAC and its use both in the hospital setting and in ambulatory surgery centers? Well, gosh, there are some very interesting developments going on. And the three GI societies back in 2004 issued a statement regarding the use of sedation and MAC and gastrointestinal endoscopic procedures. And that statement has been used perhaps properly or perhaps not in some people's eyes in an appropriate manner by a number of insurance companies. And some of us may recall that late in last year, right after Christmas time, Aetna tried to deliver a belated Christmas present to a number of us and tried to implement a new policy that would have gone into effect in April of this year where they would have not have routinely covered MAC for patients who did not have sedation-related risk factors who are undergoing gastrointestinal endoscopy. And there's a tremendous hue and cry and a pushback, and Aetna determined that in a number of these markets where MAC had become a routine approach to sedation, they felt very concerned that implementation of that policy would inconvenience people and potentially depress cancer screening rates. So what's kind of interesting is what they said next. They said that they hoped that a delay in implementing their policy would allow adequate time for the arrival of attractive, patient-friendly alternatives to anesthesiologist-monitored sedation services. Well, I'd like to thank you, Joel, for uh, spending your time with us today. I think what you have told us is very useful for our day-to-day practice. And I'm very glad to hear that we'll be introducing more quality measurements to better prove to our patients that we provide a valuable and high-quality service. Thank you for joining us. Thank you again. You have been listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute and sponsored by Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code 
A-G-A. Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is proud to sponsor this important and quality programming for ReachMD listeners. Takeda does not control the editorial content of this broadcast. The views expressed are solely those of the guests who are selected by the AGA Institute. Based in Deerfield, Illinois, Takeda Pharmaceuticals North America is a wholly owned subsidiary of Takeda Pharmaceutical Company Limited, the largest pharmaceutical company in Japan. In the United States, Takeda markets products for diabetes, insomnia, wakefulness, and gastroenterology, and is developing products in the areas of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and other conditions. Takeda is committed to striving toward better health for individuals and progress in medicine by developing superior pharmaceutical products. To learn more about the company and its products, visit www.tpna.com.